Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Will Moravitz, a former police officer who became a college professor, earning his master's in political science from Texas State University and a PhD in public policy and administration from Walden University. For the past six years, he's taught political science for Alamo Community College, and since 2018, he's also taught at Texas State University. He's the author of the recently published book, The Blue Divide, Policing and Race in America, which we'll be talking about today. Will Morvitz, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate you having me on. You know, typically, we don't get really into the background of guests on the podcast, but I would say you're an atypical case because, I mean, you're someone who's been both a police officer and an academic, and I think that allows you to bring together very unique perspectives, right, from both the world of, well, the world of practice and the world of academia. And so I thought we could start here by you talking a little bit about your background and how maybe you think it informs your approach to this topic, policing and race. Sure. Um, well, you know, growing up, I, I never, uh, never really thought about being a police officer. It wasn't something that, you know, really ever crossed my mind. Um, and then, on 9-11, I you know, just turned 23 years old, and that day really had an impact on me, as I'm sure it did to you and anybody else that was uh, of age at that time. And, you know, I started thinking about ways I could give back to the community. Um, I come from a military family, but I've always been hard of hearing um, in my right ear, so the military wouldn't accept me. So I thought, you know, let me go try this police policing and give back and um, I've always cared about people, always wanted to protect people. Uh, so I did that. And uh, unfortunately, as you talk to many police officers, I'll tell you that the job is very difficult on the home life. And uh, I left prematurely, uh, try to, you know, save my marriage um, with my two young sons. Um, unfortunately, uh, for the, the, you know, it didn't work out. And I didn't want to go back to policing at that point because, you know, my father had been missing in action, so to speak, basically my whole life. Um, and I didn't want that for them. I wanted to be as present as possible. And I thought, well, you know, a lot of my family are teachers as well. So that seemed like the natural progression. And I, I just thought to myself that if I wanted, if I was going to teach, I wanted to get as educated as possible and teach eventually at the college level. Uh, and, and so tackling this subject, uh, really interesting is I, I read academic studies and I read uh, criticisms or critiques rather from scholars or from you know people in the media. And my background allows me to kind of see the fault in, in, in some of their logic, not always, but you know sometimes they just um, it, it reminds me of the the famous Teddy Roosevelt quote um, kind of called the uh, man in the arena where he talks about it. It's easy to be a critic and sit on the sidelines while the man in the arena is actually doing all the work and winning or winning or losing or succeeding or failing. And I think about that in this context a lot because there's a lot of like Monday morning quarterbacking. And unless you've been in that situation, unless you've, you know, soldiers understand what it's like to be in, in war. I don't. Right. 
someone who's never been a police officer doesn't know what it's like to be in some of the high stress situations uh, that we do. And we can, we can watch movies, we can listen to people, but unless you've actually sat, you know, or stood in those shoes, you know, it's, it, it's very difficult to get a, a true understanding of what goes on. And so I, I was hoping that my perspective of having been, having done it and also doing research on it uh, could give a little bit more detail, give it a little bit more nuance um, into the role of policing, um, specifically with the training and the use of force continuum. Yeah, I think that's interesting because I feel like, uh, as you suggested, oftentimes without having that real world experience, I mean, there's certainly as a a fellow social scientist, you appreciate the value of kind of broad, you know, broad reaching data gathering and theorizing. But that without that practical element can be somewhat, uh, well, there's something missing. And and that's one of the things I really like about the, what you bring to this work. And, and I want to get, get into that because in the first part of the book, you look at uh, use of force training and situations in which force is used, as well as how what the sort of responses we typically see from people is, and how police are generally prepared for these situations. And of course, there are going to be differences in, in programs, I'm sure, from police department to police department. But I was thinking you could maybe give us a general sense of how police are trained to deal with these very high stress, fast moving situations with you in which use of force is something that uh, may happen. Well, I guess there's two, two real aspects to this uh, in your basic training. Um, number one is, do you, do you know the law? Do you know what the textbook, what's your response? Uh, so I talk in the book about the use of force continuum and I give examples, you know, you s- starts off with just officer presence, right? The couple is arguing, neighbor calls and Hey, they're my, you know, my neighbors are arguing officer shows up. Oh, a lot of times they just stop arguing and they're like, Oh, police are here. Right. That's officer presence. And it goes all the way up to deadly force. Uh, so knowing, knowing the textbook, knowing that information in your mind is important. Uh, but the other aspects to it that, that are very important. One, you got to practice as close to the real thing as you can. So uh, my department uh, always had a great reputation for um, uh, quality training. Uh, It was done quality and it was, uh, the quantity was pretty high. And so we did practice vehicle pursuits in a a kind of in a confined area. We practiced something called the uh, um, pursuit and mobilization technique, the pit maneuver, which basically, you know, it's a way to stop the, by, by contacting the rear bumper uh, of the person you're chasing and then turning, you know, sharply to the left or the right, depending on which side of the bumper you're talking to, it spins them out and they, they, it causes the engine to, to stall. Um, we do trainings with simunitions where some officers play the bad guys, others play the good guys. And you go through as, again, as close as possible, they'll, they'll, you know, sometimes some departments will go as far as like having flashbangs go off uh, or just distractions, you know, but it's, it's trying to recreate um, as close as possible to the, what the real thing is and, and reputation and that, you know, it breeds confidence in your skills and reputa- uh, repetition also uh, makes it more likely that you're actually going to respond in the way that you're trained. The, sec- the, the last aspect of that, I'll say, and this is something that they talked a little bit about in the police academy that I went to, but it was really drilled into me by my first field training officer, um, where 
he would constantly like on, on downtime or like if we stopped to eat lunch or something or, you know, midnight lunch or whatever it was, uh, he'd say, well, what would you do if, what if, what would you do? I can still hear his voice. Mr. Moravitz, what would you do if uh, you were driving down the street and you saw a, a body laying in the, on the side of the road? You know, just all sorts of different things. And he really ingrained in me this, this idea of mental preparedness, right? Visualizing different scenarios. How do you respond? Uh, mental practice. Uh, one of the things he also said is, you know, practice mentally being in deadly force situations, but always make sure in your little imaginary scenario in your mind that you succeed, you win, you go, which winning means you go home uh, at the end of the shift or, or whatever. So I think those three aspects are, are very uh, important. And of course, as you alluded to a minute ago, not every department has the same training budget. Not every department has the same resources. And so you do get a variation. I mean, you, you look at LAPD or NYPD versus you know, a, a town of 50,000. A lot of, a lot of uh, variation on, on, the, on the amount of training, the quality of training, the resources, the funding, all of that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, so I would, it, it's difficult for smaller departments, but I would recommend, you know, for officers to, to try to go seek out their own training if the uh, department they work for doesn't have the budget or the resources for it. And that, that requires some sacrifice on your end. Um, but it's better than the alternative, I think. You mentioned uh, in regards to your department that, that you felt it was uh, a good thing that they there were a lot of repetitions and so forth. It seems to me that for, from what I gleaned from your book, that repetition really is an incredibly important aspect of this, right? Right. I mean, you think about sports, for example, you know, I, I grew up playing basketball, football, and, and, you know, you run those plays and you run them over and over and over till it's like second nature to where you don't even really almost have to think about it. You just instinctively do it. Um, and, and I, that, that goes through with, with a lot of those types of things. And so if you do, for example, if you go through defensive tactics on, you know, self-defense tactics and you do it once a year for eight hours and that's all you do, when it comes to when the, the rubber meets the road, you're, you're not going to be prepared. Um, you know, and, and so if you're doing it constantly, if you're taking care of yourself, uh, one of the things I highly recommend these days is for officers to get involved with uh, jujitsu or wrestling or some sort of mixed martial art school, uh, because that's invaluable. As, as you, I mentioned in my book, as I'm sure you remember, I didn't have any of that training when I was a cop, but after I left the force, I did about four years as an amateur mixed martial artist. And I'll never forget that first day going in there and sparring with a guy who had been boxing since he was like 10, I think he was like 30 years old at the time. So about 20 years. And I remember him saying, I'm going to work on my defense. Um, I'm not going to swing at you or punch at you. I just want you to try to hit me. I, I couldn't hit him. I mean, he, he dodged everything I threw at him. You know, I didn't know proper technique. I didn't, you know, and so it really opened my eyes that if you encounter somebody on the job that knows how to wrestle or grapple or, you know, has been in those types of, of fights, uh, if you're not prepared, what that leads to is panic. It leads to rushing to use higher levels of force um, in those types of situations because you have left, less confidence in your ability. Uh, and, you know, so in certain situations, you, you might justifiably use lethal force, but an officer who might be prepared differently 
might have been able to subdue the person without resorting to lethal force. Um, you know, but again, that's another thing. It's 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 time, it's money because you got to pay the gym, you got to find time to go, uh, and it's, it's so it's easier said than done. I, I totally understand, but I think it's so important for officers um, to to take physical and mental care of themselves as best as possible. Yeah, and that's I, obviously I would assume that's not the sort of thing that's going to be a regular part of the, the requirements or curriculum. And in fact, I could imagine instances in which uh, unions representing police would say, "Wait a second, I you know we, you don't want to impose this burden on our officers," and so it, it might even be more more of a burden because because of that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it would have to be your own choice. I mean, there was officers, uh, you know, I left San Marcos PD at the end of 2006, and there were a few officers that, that did mixed martial arts type training. Um, and, and the way that they handle themselves when I, you know, happen to be on calls with them versus the way others might handle themselves, you could tell that there was a, you know, there's a difference just in, in this confidence and, and, People that you deal with in the, in the police force, they can they can smell fear, you know, a lot of them, um, and they also understand when an officer is on their game and they're confident, and they're they're squared away, as you might say in the military. Uh, and when you are squared away, the 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 chances of of resisting from the subject go down um, because you look like you're somebody who's very physically fit, and you, you kind of exude that confidence and that that you're in control of the situation. They're going to be much less likely to try to resist arrest or escape or anything like that than it would be for somebody who, you know, looks like somebody they can take, you know, so to speak. But um, it, it is something that officers have to have to do on their own. Um, some of the major police departments, especially if you're in SWAT or something like that, they're going to they're going to practice those kinds of things uh, quite often. But your day to day patrol officer, it's really going to be up to them. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'll, I'm going to jump forward a little bit because I, I thought we'd talk about sort of proposals at the end. But since we're talking about this now, in, in your ideal or better world, I guess we could say, uh, assuming the resources were available, would, would that sort of training, maybe not to the extent that, you know, you, you've done it, but would some sort of basic training and, and regular refreshing in that be in your mind, uh, an, an integral part of, of uh, patrol officer training or, or in, in just requalification, I guess, like you'd have to do with a weapon or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that that would be beneficial and some departments may already require that, you know, like I said, 2006, you know, it's, it's been a while. Sure. Um, you know, and I know that mixed martial arts has exploded since then. And a lot more officers are training uh, mixed martial arts. A lot more officers are even if they're not mixed martial arts, like the whole gamut, they're, they're at least doing jujitsu or wrestling. And, and that's really the most important. You don't want to get, you don't really want to get in a stand up fist fight with somebody as a cop. You, I mean, it happens, but ideally you, you want to control them. Uh, and the best way to do that is know how to grapple. Um, and, and, but conversely, MMA has exploded. And so you have a lot of people that yeah. know MMA uh -huh. that you might deal with, you know, that you might run into. And, and so, um, you know, knowing how to avoid a takedown, knowing how to get up off the ground once you do get taken down, those are some key things that, you know, I mean, you don't need to go in all the, the, the advanced stuff. Um, basically, those two things um, are, are the most important, right? Not being taken down. And if you do get taken down, how do you get back up? Um, you know, those are the things that I think would would really be helpful for every officer to to be com comfortable with. And it 
probably won't surprise you when, when I say that just about everything I know about, right? I think I know, right? Pretending to know about police training, I learned from TV or movies, you know, some combination thereof. I think most people are probably in a similar situation. And so given the fact that TV and movies tend to, let's say, exaggerate more than a little <laughs> bit about a bunch of things, I was hoping you could maybe talk about what you see as some of the more common misconceptions people have about uh, police training, use of force, that, that sort of thing that maybe have come from our exposure to cops and TV and the movies. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I your question reminded me of uh, in the police academy, the very first day of firearms training, we were doing some sort of drill called slicing the pie where I need to explain it right now, but it was just a a drill on how to kind of search a room without being seen first, like from the outside. And I grabbed the gun and I held it up like Charlie's Angels because that's what I'd seen on TV. (laughs) And the instructor's like, this isn't Charlie's Angels. You don't hold the gun like that. He showed me the proper way to hold it, um, which is, you know, if you're where the muzzle is not threat to anything, but maybe the, you know, but the ground. So that's just one example. You know, you see stuff on TV and, you know, I, I've said in previous interviews, you know, they, they make it seem like everybody is Bruce Willis and Die Hard, yeah. you know, and, and that's yeah. kind of that expectation. And that's just not the reality. Um, cops do get scared. Human beings get scared. You know, yesterday was the anniversary of, of D-Day. Those young men were scared out of their mind, but they still did it. Right. So one of the things I hear all the time is, well, if you're scared, you shouldn't be a cop. And I'm like, that's just not that's not reasonable at all because you're going to, not that you're scared, like, Oh, I don't want to go in, but you know, you get that adrenaline pumping, you get kind of like that, that hyper awareness where you really are focused in on something. Um, but I do think the tactics that you see in a lot of movies and TV shows are pretty, pretty terrible. Um, and I think, you know, I, my wife sometimes hates watching cop movies or shows with me because I'm always yelling at them when they, they're walking around with their finger on the trigger or they're doing they're they're entering a room and they're going really slow, like down a hallway, which fatal funnel, you're not supposed to stay in the doorway very, you know, it's split second is, is all that they want you in there. Um, one of the biggest things I've seen is a show that I, I enjoyed for a very long time called Criminal Minds. Um, about the the FBI's behavioral unit. At, it seemed like at the end of every episode. The the unsub or the you know whatever they call them the 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 offender has a gun to a victim's head a knife to a victim's throat or pointing at the officer and then what do they do they start to talk him down and they're all, almost always able to talk him down you know yeah. without shooting them that is very unrealistic um, because in a real life situation at that point you have a split second decision and you have to assume that that person is going to do what they're threatening you to do. So to save that victim, you know, you need to take action as quickly as possible. This trying to talk them down type of thing works great in the movies. Um, but it, it's not, not realistic. Now, if there's no one there, if it's just, you know, the unsub, he's got a, a knife and you're, you know, 20 feet away and you have way to back up. You know, there's a video I, lo- I, I write about or I reference in my book about two officers in that very situation. They're outside and a, a man with a knife is coming towards them, but they're, they have a, a lot of distance in between them. And the cops keep backing up like for a really long ways and to the point where they actually get into the roadway. 
And eventually the guy charges at one of the officers and the officer shoots him several times. He goes down, but then he gets back up and charges the officer again and gets him kind of like in a chokehold. And the other officer had to come and, and you know, save his partner. And so for me, I, I write about that because, you know, people will often say to me, well, they had a knife. Why did you have to shoot him? Well, go watch that video. Or why couldn't you just shoot him in the knee? Go watch that video. Okay. You try to hit a moving, you know, and, and someone running at you and you're going to try to hit them in the knee. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I wanted to ask you about that because one thing that I, 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 think is hilarious uh, and maybe not hilarious is the right word but in so many of these shows the the police in these high tension situations they are they're just incredibly uh i would say almost inhumanly right cool and they seem to be able to hit center mass wherever they're aiming at whether it's the knee directly between the eyes you name it and that very much goes against what we know from the data on shootings where more than half the time even well trained officers miss uh, their target. And so I, it seems to me that that kind of is a good way for us to maybe move into uh, what you write about in the book about what we know about how the body responds, anybody responds pretty much in these high stress situations. Sure. So when, when you, um, I, I just go through a few of the examples because there's quite a bit uh, of them in that chapter. Um, but some of the things that happen as your heart rate increases in these stress situations. Okay. You lose fine motor skills. Your dexterity with your fingers, you know, goes down. And of course, you use your fingers to fire the weapon. Um, you're, you, you tend to get tunnel vision where your other senses, oftentimes, you, you, they kind of get dampened. And then your eyesight is what, what is really hyper-focused on. And so your body kind of, you know, kind of ignores maybe sounds or different things because it's focused on the threat that's in front of you. Um, you know, you're when you look at something called adenosine triphosphate, it's ATP for short. And, and that's something that's naturally in your muscles. You can take supplements to, to increase it a little bit, but that's like your, your big energy point um, for your muscles. And, and when you exert full force on those types of things, um, and then you add in the stress, the, the, this uh, physiological stress factor your muscles will fatigue very quickly, 10 to 12 seconds, um, perhaps. So this is, again, why repeated firearms training, not just at the range, but on you know, practical scenarios. There was a, a center out in San Marcos called the Alert Center. It was a joint operation between the federal government and state uh, and local police. And, you know, they had... You know, little obstacles out there, you know, had cars and a school bus that you could, you know, practice doing different scenarios with a building that you could search and things like that, plus a, an actual shooting range. So, again, it's just one of those things where you got to put yourself in the situations because you're never going to be fully able to um, to mitigate all of those effects. Right. Because you're you're. Uh, when you know that you're not being fired on, actually, and have a potential to be killed, I mean, that's that's always going to be uh, you can't practice that. Right? No, you definitely can't practice that, and and you know, but you can be as prepared as possible, and, sure. and that'll put you in a better situation. I give you you know an example uh, of of this um, with my excuse me, my short career. There was a a, a young man late twenties who we had dealt with 
many times um, in felony type situations. He finally ended up not being released <laughs> uh, from jail when we arrested him. But this this one last particular time, uh, he had the call came out that he he had kidnapped his girlfriend um, out out of the uh, local convenience store. They called out the driver's uh, license, or excuse me, the license plate of the car. I happened to be, it was like three in the morning, if I remember right. I happened to be like a block away, kind of refreshing through traffic code, you know, because it was three in the morning. A lot of times there's not a lot right. going on. And so I'm, I'm then there kind of like refreshing some things. And I was like, I bet you I, can, I know exactly where he's going because I knew where the guy lived. Sure enough, I pull around the corner and I'm right behind him. And as soon as I turn my lights on, boom, he takes off. So we're going... I wasn't really looking at my uh, speedometer when I was pursuing him, but we were, you know, three in the morning through downtown San Marcos, residential areas uh, just off of downtown. And it felt like I was going 70 miles an hour. I'm sure I wasn't going quite that fast, but, you know, you call in and I I can remember being hyper-focused on the car and calling out my location. And that's all about all I remember. I can't remember anything on my right or left hand peripheral vision. And then eventually a backing officer came and took over when, when they show up, they take over radio call outs. So you can focus on the lead person can focus on driving and we chase him. We get him all the way to uh, his residence and, and he slams on the brakes, jumps out of the car. I jump out of the car and the guy jumped and we grab him basically at the, near the trunk of his car. And, um, you know, I had my gun out cause I knew he was a violent person. The other, you know, was, and the other officers went hands on. So I was kind of like their, their cover, got him into custody, put him in the car. We're going to take him to, to jail. And then boom, that adrenaline dump just hit me. And I remember my right leg shaking like a leaf, um, because, and, you know, that's not, and I tried to stop it, but you just can't, I mean, right. that's how your body reacts to those types of things. Um, and so people need to understand that, 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 again, that's why I brought up the D-Day thing, not just because it was two days ago, but, or you see me yesterday, but though the courage and bravery is not an absence of fear. It is being afraid and still doing what you're supposed to do. And it's a lot easier said than done. And so, you know, when I hear people make that comment, I'm like, you really don't know what you're talking about. Um, yeah, for most and- people, I mean. And I know that in the book, I mean, we're talking generally here about use of force in these situations. And to me, the big takeaway is if you expect uh, police in real life to act like police, at least police uh, heroically portrayed in TV and movies, well, then you are asking for them to do what's what's really inhuman, you know, superhuman in a way. And that's an unfair standard. Uh, but I, I want to yeah. move. I want to move things into more specifically the focus of your book, and and that is a deadly force in situations where race is an issue. In really the heart of the book, you take a pretty close look at ten of I would say the most widely reported of these use of force incidents that almost everyone who follows this will have, will have heard of, um, and. Obviously, each of these situations is going to be very different in a number of respects. But I'm wondering if when you, in doing all this research, because I know as a researcher, there's stuff you, you find that you uncover that doesn't exactly make it into the book, but it's still stuck there in your head, right? So all mm-hmm. of the vast amount of information you've taken in about these instances, 
Did you find any major commonalities or things that link many or most of them that that you got from delving into these cases? Yeah, I mean, it's not something that applies to every single case, um, but generally speaking, um, these are cases where uh, the police have reason to believe that a crime has been committed um, or there's somebody actively resisting arrest. That's not the case with everyone. I mean, you know, George Floyd did not want to be in the backseat of that car. He watched the whole body cam and he was already having trouble breathing before he even got out of his car. Um, but he wasn't resisting. Now, and obviously, you know, he was killed and, and um, you know, you can go back and forth about whether he would have died because of fentanyl anyways. Um, but the reality is Derek Chauvin spent the rest of his life in prison and, and he wasn't resisting. Uh, Philando Castile was not resisting, but he did have a gun on him, even though he was licensed and he had told the officer, I have a gun on him, gun on me. And, you know, it was, if you watch that, that was before body cam or that particular department to have body cam. And if you watch the, the vehicle, like the police camera that's in the car, that happens so fast. And, and, and that officer did get indicted. He did go to, to, um, trial and he was acquitted. Um, but outside of those, you know, you, a lot of times it's people putting themselves in a situation where police are going to get called. They're committing a crime um, or they are associated with somebody like the Breonna Taylor shooting. Um, that was a legit warrant. They had, if you read the evidence uh, about that they had on her, um, it's pretty overwhelming. In fact, Sergeant Mattingly, who was the police officer shot by her boyfriend, uh, when they entered the the apartment, um, he wrote a book about it um, recently, and the, the amount of misinformation that comes out of these stories is also, uh, or, or maybe not misinformation. Sometimes it's blatant misinformation. Sometimes it's more about uh, lack of context or lack of information. Cherry picking, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that that would I be, you know, like, and occasionally you know, one of the things that struck me uh, with the Tamir Rice shooting is the dispatch did not inform the two police officers in Cleveland that um, the the caller that called in saying there was a young black male pointing a gun at people in this little park area. The the caller told dispatch it's probably fake. They never told the officers that. So when the officers show up, they see a black male with a gun in his hand and they quickly tell him to drop it. He doesn't and they shoot and fire. Maybe it could have gone a different way. You know, I, I think Tamir Rice is probably still alive today had dispatch informed them because it changes the it changes the knowledge what the officer has when they arrive. Um, most of these situations happened in urban areas. Um, not all, but the, the major, overwhelming majority of them did. Um, and in the one case, the Micaiah Bryant case, um, th- this is one where, you know, I, I'm pretty hard on LeBron James about this and some other things. <laughs> um, yeah. But but if you remember, Micaiah Bryant was shot and killed right around the same time the Derek Chauvin verdict came down. And LeBron put on his Twitter, I don't know how many millions and millions of followers he has, but he put on his Twitter a picture of Officer Reardon, who was the one who shot and killed Micaiah Bryant, with the caption, in all caps, you're next. Now, did he mean your next is and you're the next one to kill did to, to be killed? Did he mean your next in the sense of you're the next one to go to prison like Derek Chauvin? 
probably the latter. Um, he ended up deleting his tweet and, and, and changed. But, but my thing at the time was like, so what? The officers are supposed to let Micaiah Bryant stab another black girl to death? Like, does, does her life not matter? Like, do you realize what she was doing at the time? She was yelling, I'm going to fucking stab you. And was had a girl pinned up against a car with a knife in her hand. As she, and she was shot right as she was thrusting towards her. And I'm just like, the, the, the cognitive dissonance that it takes to think that, I mean, what's the officer supposed to do? Yeah, and I wanted to, I wanted to get into that because I think everyone, or not everyone, but a lot of people in these situations, when there's a report of, especially of a, a white police officer shooting and killing a, a black person, that a lot of people go into that hearing nothing more than that with their minds made up both both ways, honestly, on both sides of things. And and you've experienced the the policing world, right? And the far the far different world of academia, where I think there are plenty of people who are on those extremes. And so right. I'm wondering then given how you really exposed yourself in a deep way and a really in-depth way to this stuff, what was there anything that you came out of this saying like, wow, I, I I'm surprised at this was there anything that kind of challenged your preconceptions going in on this you know i i, I guess i don't know if it's a challenge but one that i i had it obviously the the derek chauvin george floyd incident i i could not fathom uh i mean i know what his argument was that he was worried about excited delirium which sometimes will happen with people that are high mm-hmm. um but why he had his knee on his neck for nine minutes and some change, I, I can't fathom what he was thinking. Um, so that that shocked me. But I mean, that wasn't something that um, I learned in research. I, I just something we all saw, right? We saw sure. the video of it. Um, the another thing that I think that kind of surprised me because I didn't know a lot about the Eric Garner case initially. He's the uh, the first person I talked about. Um, who I can't breathe. He was like, I can't breathe. Part one is, and in that particular case, the, the supposed chokehold that, that people blame for his death, I think was applied. And it's a, it's a blood choke. Like you would do in mixed martial arts. And it, it, he applied it maybe for eight seconds at most. And then the rest of the time they're subduing him. And and you read the autopsy report and finds out that he's got severe heart trouble. He was morbidly obese. You know, there's all these other factors that don't get talked about, um, you know, and so I think those things, you know, people like there, there's a case just the other day, um, police shoot and kill unarmed pregnant black woman. Turns out the body cam, she's pointing a gun at the cops and no one has, to my knowledge, has verified that she was actually pregnant, but it got put out there and everybody just kind of jumped on it because that's, right. you know, that. That's what they they want to hear. I remember Michael Brown when it first happened. Hands up, don't shoot. I, when I first heard that, I was like, "Oh my gosh, he just executed the guy." And then it's like he delve more into it and you realize, "Oh no, that was his friend that said that." All these other witnesses, black and white, said no, he was charging the officer. You know, things like that. And I th- it, this isn't in my book, but I want to go back to the first time I really realized that the media distorts reality when it comes to yeah. policing. And I'll, I'll be brief with it, but. When I was 14 years old, Rodney King. Um, I'm sure you know the listeners probably pretty familiar with that incident that ended up with the LA riots. What I found out about a decade later watching a documentary on that is that there's 13 seconds of video that 
was never shown to the public, but was shown to the jury. And in that, LAPD uses the continuum of force. They, they low levels of force weren't working. Um, there's at one point where Rodney King has an officer kind of in a chokehold. There's another point where he basically throws an officer across the cement. And what did they show? They only showed King on his knees and on his stomach being hit with billy clubs. So of course people are going to respond with, with this kind of like, they were just beating this poor black man. What they didn't, you know, wasn't widely publicized as he was on PCP, which one of the side effects is it can increase your strength two to three times your normal strength. But then that 13 seconds wasn't shown. And so when I saw that, I was like, wow, that really changes my perception of that incident because I like probably everybody else in America had thought, wow, the police were just racist bastards who was beating this poor black guy. Um, wasn't that simple. And so that really opened my eyes to not just jumping on the first thing that you hear. Um, and, and I've been going through that recently. Uh, I don't know if you noticed in my bio, but I was, I was born and raised in Uvalde, Texas. Mm-hmm. I, uh, yeah. I went, I went to the school, uh, where, where that happened. And, um, you know, it's, um, it, it's just something you, you, you heard all those initial media reports, a lot of them turned to be false. And you've had all this kind of misinformation, misdirection. And now it's at the point where are we ever going to even know what the actual truth was? Like, is there ever going to be, it's, it's, it's almost kind of like the JFK thing. Like there's been so many conspiracy theories, like whatever the truth is, people aren't going to believe it. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I got a little off on a tangent. There, no, but, no, it's, that's, that's um, fine. Yeah. I, in you, you mentioned context and I want to talk a little bit more about context because in the book you make, well, a number of comparisons between police use of deadly force and a number of other preventable causes of death in the United States. And maybe you could talk a little bit about why, why you felt that that was an important and useful thing to kind of keep in mind in terms of context. Well, I think because the narrative is often that it's an epidemic. Um, Again, not to pick on LeBron again, um, but he talked about one time after Ahmaud Aubrey was shot and killed, uh, which obviously was not by police, but it was by three white men who were all sentenced uh, to life in prison in Georgia um, by a jury of 11 white people, by the way, and one person of color. So if there's, if there's any evidence that things have changed in the South, that's probably the best example I can give you because you're talking about the deep South, three white men kill a black man, almost an exclusively white jury, and they find all three of them guilty on a mis- every charge. Um, but when he tweeted that, he's like, we're being hunted. and and, and I think that narrative, I just wanted to show people that the, the odds of being killed by police, whether you're white, black, Hispanic, or whatever, are astronomically low. Uh, another reason why I wanted to put that piece in there is after George Floyd was, was killed, uh, a man by the name of Ami Horowitz, who does these like Ami on the street interviews about different political topics, went to Minneapolis and was asking black people just on the street, uh, how many unarmed black people were killed by police every year? And some of these people were saying, one in particular that really struck me is she's like, oh gosh, at least a hundred. And then she's like, oh, you mean in the whole country or just Minneapolis? And he said yeah. the whole country. And he's, and she says, oh, gotta be in the thousands. Right. The actual number at that year was nine. And so I, I wanted to kind of give it in context because you know I've taught black students in high school who, who feared getting pulled over. And I'm like, you've got to understand that the, 
the odds of something bad happening while they're there. No one's going to deny that. They're astronomically low. And so I wanted to compare other things that people don't worry about. Um, car accidents, falling, various things like that. Um, you know, the CDC, for example, will tell you about a quarter of a million people die in America every year because of medical mistakes, but nobody's afraid to go to the doctor. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's a yeah. few people, but you know, yeah. so I, I just really wanted to put in perspective, um, not to, not to mitigate the loss, uh, that, that people experience in, in, in situations where a loved one dies, but just for the average reader, just to understand that, that these events while highly publicized, um, are extraordinarily rare. Right. When and you consider that, how many contacts police have with the public. Yeah, and that kind of plays into a larger body of research about people's uh, uh, feelings of safety or how much crime there is. And they almost invariably think that there's a whole lot more than there actually is because of those media reports, which tend to get a lot of a lot of focus, a lot of attention, that sort. Yeah. And social media has just made that worse, too, yeah. because you, it, things trend and you're just more we're just so much more aware of things, you know, in the eighties where I grew up as a kid, my mom would just let me go wherever, never lock the door, just you'd leave your bike in the front yard, you know, that kind of thing. And the crime in the eighties was way worse than it is today. Um, Parents couldn't do that today. They'd be social services would be on them. So yeah, absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah. But you know, some people would say, okay, sure. It's, it's not an epidemic maybe, but uh, and as you said, that doesn't mean it's it's an okay thing. And also, some people say, "Well, wait a second. Now, let's take a look at this through the lens of race." And on right. one level, it seems to me it's it kind of an incontrovertible, incontrovertible fact, right? Because black men make up around six point six percent of the U.S. population, and they account for, on average. 26% of police homicides. Now, a lot of people would look at that and say, well, how can you how can you look at those numbers and see anything but racial bias? But you write in the book that that's, that's patently untrue and it has been for decades. And so please, you know, t- talk about how you reached a conclusion that at least on the surface seems to be to be at the very least surprising. Okay. So a couple of things about when I analyze that data. Number one, I use the Washington Post database, which they usually, about an average of a thousand people a year, according to their database, are killed by in police shootings. I use that one because it's the highest number of, of the sources I found. Like, for example, the CDC right. says the average number of police homicides a year for all people is about 430, if I remember correctly. So that's a big difference. You know, it's almost 600 people difference, but I wanted to use the, the, the largest numbers. Uh, out of that thousand, like I said, about 250, 200, so uh, 60 people that are killed are black men. I say, okay, so, you know, obviously that's racism, right? And I've seen this on news media where they point that fact out. And you're right, it is a fact, but it's missing one key element. Okay. It's missing the element of which race commits the most crime and the most violent crime. Now, when you look at this, that statistic, let me put it to you this one. I, I, I'm sure that you read in my book, but in the, in, for the listeners, if I were to tell you that NBA referees are racist because 6.6% of the, black pop, of, of the population are black men, but they account for 85% of all fouls called in the NBA, what would you obviously tell me? Well, What's the yeah, fallacy there? Yeah, ex- exactly. Because most it, NBA players are, are, are black. Yeah. And up until a few years ago, it was like 
probably in the the mid 80s to low 90s. Now I think it's closer to 75% as the European players have gotten a lot better. But um, but yeah, that that's and, and so when you when you look at this this issue, you look at okay, so from, from 1980 to 2018, FBI uniform crime reports show that 51% of all homicides in that 38-year period were committed by black men. 53% of all homicides were committed by black people because you have 2% that were uh, committed by women. Um, you look at things such as aggravated assault, armed robbery, all of those types of crimes where there is a, an aggressive criminal element, where there is a weapon involved or there's serious injury, far more, you know, 50 to 60%, depending on the, on the, the particular offense, are committed by young black men. And it's a very, very small percentage of young black men. Um, you know, the vast, vast majority of, of, of black people of any age are law-abiding citizens that, that contribute a lot to the society. Um, but those are just facts you, you, you can't get around. Um, and, you know, I've had people tell me, well, you can't trust the FBI. Okay, well, let's look at the CDC. Right. Right. Or let's let's look at the National Crime Victim Survey, um, which doesn't involve police at all. It's just asking people, you know, okay, do you know what was the color of the person that that committed the crime? Do you know? Yes, no. Okay, well, what was it? And they tell you. And you see that there's there's not, if you compare the numbers from the National Crime Victim Survey to the FBI crime report with the CDC data, it's all pretty similar. Um, you know, which indicates to me that that it's the rate of offending. It is the cause for that as opposed to a racial bias. No, I think on that, some people might come back and if they, even if they accepted all of that analysis, I can definitely, and I know there are some people say, okay, even if that's true, there's an argument that, well, it's based on the number of uh, police interactions. And that's, that's in, to some extent is determined by the people that police officers choose to stop and interact with. And there's that whole idea of, of what's called driving while black and so forth. And right. the kind of similar idea that a lot of black neighborhoods are, according to some folks, over-policed and overly aggressively policed. And so if you're creating an environment in which there are just going to be a lot more interactions with black people because police are being more are being more aggressive, are, are policing them more. Well, then you're going to get more of that. And so there's still an underlying problem as opposed to just the, a higher level of criminality. I, what, what do you think about that argument? Well, you know, it, this whole defund the police movement that happened last uh, few years and the activists pushing for this. One thing that really struck me is uh, a lot of some news media outlets went to inner city black neighborhoods and asked the older people, age 40, 40 and up, do you want more police? And they're like, yeah, we do, because we're scared of crime that's around here. Um, You know, and I think that when you look at our black neighborhoods, for example, over police, well, I would say no, because police are assigned to districts. Right? You're assigned to your little beat, whatever it may be. And when you're assigned to that district, you you go where the action is, whether it be because the someone's called 911 and you said it, or because you're just running traffic in an area. Like, for example, my one of the districts I ran um, at the time was uh, the south side of San Marcos along I-35. 
And although San Marcos has grown quite a bit since then, at the time, there really wasn't anything out that way besides the outlet mall and a couple of apartment complexes. Now it's much, much different. So my traffic was, I do some stuff on the interstate, but a lot of times I'd, I'd kind of roam around and, and back up other officers or go to districts that were close by because there just wasn't a lot of action in my district for you know the, the time I was assigned to that. So I think, you know, when, when you look at an officer and you're saying, okay, this is your district, you, you look at the, the history, okay, where is crime most likely to happen? Because you're trying to prevent crime, right? So you, you, you stay in those areas and you get, sometimes you get out and you walk around and you smell dope or you, you know, hear somebody arguing and you just go check it out, you know, um, for whatever reason, there's just not a lot of, uh, you know, middle-class, upper middle-class neighborhoods just don't have a lot of a lot of action you know my my neighborhood growing up was very middle class it was kind of outside the the town of Uvalde but i can't ever think of the police ever showing up in my neighborhood not because it was primarily white because it wasn't Uvalde is about 80% hispanic uh but because nothing ever happened out there and so the only time they'd go there is if someone called 911 so you know my answer to that would be look at the data uh, of where crime is committed, who is committing it, and you would expect the police to be policing those areas more heavily because if they spent all their time in in areas that didn't experience a lot of crime, well then they're going to say, well, why are you wasting your time over there? You know, when we've got this violent crime just you know eight eight to nine blocks you know away from you. Um, so it's kind of all those you know it's damned if you do, damned if you don't, but. Um, you know, I, I definitely think that that while I understand people's concern about that, um, the reality is is police are going to go where the action is. It doesn't matter what color that neighborhood is. Which is which is I'm sure not to say that any any particular race or is is inherently more criminal or anything like that than any other. But there are just other fa- no. I would assume other factors that that you would probably if we were have, having another conversation are are driving some of the things that lead to crime. Yeah, Even sure. I mean, yeah. I, I you know I mean poverty does not cause crime, but it, there's a high correlation between poverty and crime. Sure. Um, you know, there's a really high po- uh, correlation between uh, people committing crime, especially young men who did not have fathers in the home. So those are some things that, that yeah, they definitely, when you look at I think Barack Obama, I forget the exact numbers, but he's like, they're, they're far more likely, boys raised without a father in the home are far more likely um, to end up in prison, to be poor, to do drugs, join gangs, and things like that. And when you look at the current rate, you know, according to CNN and some others, about 70, to, depending on which source you use, between 70 and 75% of young black men born today are born in a home that does not have a father present. Not to say that the father is completely out of the picture, but they're not at home. And that correlates very heavily with getting, you know, Tupac Shakur mentioned this back in the 90s. You know, if I had a father to, to calm me down and do things, he's like, I, I wouldn't have turned to the gangs in the streets. You know, he said a, a man can calm a man down better than a woman can, is what is his paraphrasing, of course. Um, but I think that has a lot to do with it as well. Yeah. And I mean, so th- that aside, do you think it do you think things would be any different if and some people would say, for instance, that police should look like 
the people they're policing and should live in their neighborhoods. And in a lot of in a lot of instances, that's not really the case. And so some people say, well, look, if you got a bunch of white people who aren't living in the city who are policing a bunch of black people living in very different neighborhoods, of course, they're going to come at it with sort of an us versus them mentality, as opposed to people kind of looking after their own. I wanted to get your your take on that. Well, I think, you know, as far as living uh, in the area that you patrol, again, depending on the jurisdiction, the department you're in, your area that you're going to patrol is going to change. So there's a difference between being a cop in, say, Houston, Texas, as opposed to San Marcos, because, sure. you know, the size difference, the not just with the population, but just the, the total distance. And so if you're assigned to the to an area of Houston that is very high crime, why would you want to live there as a, if you didn't have to as a police officer, right? Especially because, I mean, people are going to know, hey, that cop lives there. Let's go, you know, mess with this house or do something to him. Uh, in San Marcos, it's, you know, a smaller town. It's much harder to, you know, to get away from those areas you patrol. So you do kind of live there. And if you, I think if you look at small towns and their, the relationships with the police are probably, I mean, I don't know the, the actual date on this, but I would, I would guess that it's a little bit better because you know these people. Like I remember Officer Brown, Officer Garcia, uh, and Evaldi. I, I went to school with their kids, you know, I knew who they were. And 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 so there was a little bit more of a friendly kind of atmosphere when I did run into them because I was like, oh, man, that's you know, Annie and Becky's dad or sure. that's Oscar's dad. Um, you know, but I think when you look at there are exceptions to this, but when you look at the population of blacks in the country, 12, 13%. 15% of police officers nationally are black. So they're actually slightly overrepresented in the police okay. force. Now, mm-hmm. where does that happen? That happens in the big cities, right? Because minorities, whether they're black, Asian, or Hispanic, or whatever, Latino, they tend to live in bigger cities. Um, look at Baltimore. I didn't mention Freddie Gray in my book, but we're that right. whole Freddie Gray thing, right? District Attorney Mosby, black woman, the police chief, black man, mayor, black, you know, the those kinds of things. I think when, when the majority and, and the majority or a high, high percentage of, of officers in some of those departments are black. So, you know, I, I don't really see overall, uh, it's a problem for places like Ferguson, right? Ferguson, that was yeah. a big thing yeah. about Ferguson, a lot of white cops dealing with a lot of black, but, you know, I think, again, I think it's a, it's, relegated to depending on the community because you look sure. at Baltimore, look at New York city, you look at Chicago, there's a lot of black police officers. Uh, and if you talk to black police officers, they'll often tell you that, that they get looked at worse than the white officers because they're often saying, Oh, you're an uncle Tom, you're, you're a sellout, you're a trait race trader. You know, and I, I've, I've known black officers that get told that and uh, you know, but it, in a perfect world, yeah, it would be better, but I just, I think a lot of it has to do with just seeing seeing the police uh, in a different light because if it doesn't if you think police are bad, it doesn't really matter if it's a Hispanic cop, a white cop, or a black cop showing up at your door. All you see is blue. So let's let's pull back just a little bit as we kind of come closer to the end of things. Uh, um, even let, let's say we let's say we accept the conclusion that police use of deadly force isn't racially driven. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's not kind of a more general 
problem with police use of force. And uh, for instance, if you look in the U.S., police homicides are around a thousand per year, and that's pretty consistent in recent years. But that's mm-hmm. considerably higher than in most any other developed countries. I, I looked at, uh, according to Statista in 2019, uh, it was uh, 33.5 per 10 million police killings in the U.S. compared to 9.8 in Canada, 8.5 in Australia, 1.3 in Germany, and 0.5 in England and Wales. I mean, I think a lot of people look at that and say, wow, regardless of racial bias, we've got a real problem with overly overly aggressive policing in the U.S. And I wanted to get your, your take on that. Well, I know a little bit about some of those other countries and my understanding, at least like with England is it at least in the past, I don't know about recently in the last few years or so, but correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought that a lot of the patrol officers in, in, in England, for example, did not even carry yeah. guns. Yeah. Um, I know Australia basically confiscated everyone's gun. Um, America, we, we have the most guns. We have the most legally owned guns and I'm, Guessing out of developed countries, we probably have the most illegally owned guns. Uh, and 82% of all crime, according to Washington Post, is committed with an illegal, 82% of a gun crime is committed with an illegal gun. I think a lot of that is just an American uh, cultural difference. Um, sort of thing. If the country's more violent, you're going to have more violent police interactions, just as a matter of course. Right. And I think, you know, you look at, uh, you know, part of it has to deal with the history of the U.S. Part of it just has to do with the culture. Um, I, I, I'm remembering uh, back in uh, in high school, my German teacher telling me mm-hmm. that uh, Germans view sex the way that Americans view violence. And what she meant by that is you can turn on regular German TV commercials, whatever, and you'd see nudity. You know, the the TV shows were more sexually explicit, but there was hardly ever any violence because to them, violence was a thing. Oh, you don't want to show that. Whereas in America, I, right. I can yeah. remember growing up like mom, mom and dad, don't look at the breasts, you know, yeah. at five years old. But, oh, look, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger murdering everybody. <laughs> sure, you know, it's yeah. a Terminator. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you know, you can you can watch that. So I think there's a lot of that, too. It's just a, it's a big cultural difference. Um, yeah. And the fact, you know, that. There's a lot of guns in this country. Oh yeah. Um, and and when you're presented with a gun or a knife, not to say that there isn't a legally justifiable reason to shoot an unarmed person, um, but when you're presented with a deadly weapon, you're trained. Okay, protect yourself in in the threat. Um, so yeah, I mean, I do I do think uh, culture has to deal with it. The the way police are trained, just whether or not police have guns. I mean, it'd be kind of hard to kill. Uh, a criminal in, in England, if you don't have a weapon. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. But, well, you know, I'd like to, I'd like that. And on sort of a, a positive note, uh, and I, maybe here's a way to do it. Not too long ago, President Biden signed an executive order that was directed at federal law enforcement, which is mm-hmm. a, a minority, something kind of around 11, only 11% of all law enforcement officers are federal. But uh, this order mandates body cams, bans chokeholds, restricts no-knock warrants, uh, tightens standards around 
uh, training around use of force. It calls for a comprehensive data tracking on use of force incidents that involves these federal law enforcement officers. And it also restores the Obama era restrictions on transfer of military equipment to local law enforcement, kind of the major things it hits. I wanted to get your take on that, not just as it applies to federal law enforcement, but if we're looking at kind of a template maybe for how we might improve uh, you know, state and local law enforcement, what you think about that as a potential template? Well, I, there, I think there's aspects to it that I, I think are good and aspects that I think may or may not be good. Um, for instance, body cams are great. Um, body cams. I remember when I left the police force, they were starting to kind of experiment with body cams. And I remember a lot of officers were, were like, oh my gosh, it's just going to be big brother watching over us all the time. But it's actually turned out to do the opposite. It's saved the skin of a lot of officers um, because you can see what they see. Uh, so I'm all for body cameras. Um, and, and I would love to see fun, more funding for police agencies that may not be able to provide body cameras. Um, you know, I don't know if Uvalde police or Uvalde school district police had body cameras or not. I, I don't know that, but um, if they do, I'd love to see, at least may not me personally, but I'd love for the investigators to be able to look at that sure. and say, okay, this is what they saw. Um, when you look at demilitarizing the police, this has been a big thing in the last, you know, Homeland Security was created after 9-11 and really where the militarization of the police came from was as a, as a response to 9-11. But Again, not going back to the Valdi instance, you're like, well, why couldn't you break down this door, or why didn't you have the body armor or the the, the you know the, the high caliber rifle to go after this active shooter? And I'm not blaming this on on that at all. I'm just saying that on one hand, you're saying the police should have been better prepared with better equipment, and the other hand, you're saying we're giving them too much. That you look too military when you've got this battering ram and this you know whatever this high powered uh, long range rifle or what have you. Um, so you gotta, I think you gotta pick and choose like what, which do you, what do you want to do? You want to have police officers that are prepared for every instance, or do you want to have officers that look nicer, but may not maybe unprepared in certain situations. And it's not necessarily uh, an all or nothing thing. I mean, you can say, well, maybe having some better equipment, but not necessarily having an assault vehicle or something like that. Right. And I think, you know, SWAT teams have assault vehicles. You yeah. know, I guess you don't really call them a SWAT assault vehicles necessarily, but yeah, those are big, scary-looking tank-like um, um, things. But SWAT's a whole different yeah, oh, yeah. They do with a lot of different things. But the the one that that I'm I see both sides to is the no-knock warrant. Um, because on one hand, if the person doesn't know that it's police breaking down their door, they might you know shoot back. But on the other hand, if you announce yourself, it gives you extra time. To, to fight back if you're going to attack the police. Um, the Breonna Taylor incident, for example, yeah. got reported as a no-knock warrant. Now, officers on scene, including Sergeant Mattingly, say we did, we did not have to knock, but we chose to knock anyways. And he makes the assertion that had they, not, had they gone in unannounced, that Breonna Taylor would still be alive. And the reason for that is because banging on the door, even if they didn't hear the police say, hey, we're the police. Her boyfriend got up with a gun, and as soon as they came in, he fired and shot Mattingly in the leg, and other officers returned fire. Unfortunately, Bronna Taylor was caught in the crossfire and died. But his argument is, you know, had we just 
taking the door down right off the bat and we're in there, please, please, you know, that there's not time for him to grab a gun and get reoriented. It's like, Oh crap, police are in my bedroom, you know? Right. So I see, I see both sides of that. Um, because warrants are very dangerous things to serve. Um, got the police officer I worked with at San Marcos uh, after I left, he became, you know, the first in the line of death duty in San Marcos for a long time. And it was serving a warrant. Um, and so when you, when you, I, I remember backing up SWAT when they served a warrant on a guy that was running, running guns. And my job was to be at the back side of the house in case they ran out the back door. And I can remember hearing them. They, they said, San Marcos, please, boom, knock the door down and threw flashbangs in. Um, disorient them. And I, so I think, again, it, it, it's something that I don't like the aspect of banning them outright because then it prevents you from using them selectively on certain targets that, that really may need the no-knock warrants that you, you protect the officers. And I that um, you wanted to point out in in the Biden executive order, and if I mis- misspoke, I might have. It's a it's a restriction, but not a ban. Okay. So you wouldn't necessarily be uh, uh, against a, a restriction, but because you think that there are instances in which that that they can be useful and actually potentially save lives or save people from getting injured. What about chokeholds? They, that's something that comes up a lot as well. Well, you know, chokeholds. I guess it kind of depends on what kind of chokehold we're talking about. I mean. You know, in a deadly force situation, the way I was trained is you do whatever you you need to do to survive. So if you got a guy stabbing you and the only thing you can do to stop him is to start choking him, well, then do it. Um, but I think the reason why that that's brought up, like Eric Garner and the, the chokehold, if there is no deadly force threat, absolutely shouldn't be restricting the airway. Um, however, again, this is one of the things that that as a political science professor, I, I, I come across a lot where politicians um, speak out on things or write legislation on things they don't know a lot about. And, <laughs> Shocking. And, and, and I think, yeah, and I think one of the things I tell my students a lot is when, when there's a problem in society, oftentimes the government will do something, whether it's effective or not, just to make it look like they're doing something. Absolutely. Um, you know, and and so. This particular situation, I just don't know. Yeah, you know if they if they really understand uh, the ramifications of what they're doing, and in the, in the instance of the of the chokehold, they I, I've talked a lot about doing wrestling or Brazilian jiu jitsu. The chokeholds and those are what we call blood chokes, meaning you can still breathe, but it cuts the blood off to your brain and you go out. Right, and then as soon as they let go, you wake up. You're kind of dizzy, but you're Hey, I, it's it, um, very unlikely that that would end in someone's death unless you continued pressure for an extended period of time. But I, I just, that was not, I was trained in, in one of those arm bar restraints in the academy, but my department did not allow us to use it. I'm a little hesitant uh, to ban those things outright. I think it's something that if, if done properly, if trained properly, that it can be an effective tool to prevent the subject you're dealing with from, from dying or getting hurt. Because again, going back to what I said earlier, when you have more tools in your tool belt, when you are more confident yeah. um, in your abilities, 
you're less likely to resort to higher levels of force because you're not panicked. You, 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 it hasn't risen to that level yet. Yeah, I guess what I'm hearing you saying is that it's that uh, a lot of these, I mean, all of these situations are going to be different, are going to be nuanced. And so kind of taking a one size fits all kind of this is entirely banned is, is problematic because that's sort of trying to get around the fact that maybe there isn't sufficient training and practice to kind of so that officers are able to use these things appropriately in the right context in the right situation. Oh, yeah. Is that about right? That is. And I think, you know, the totality of the circumstances is, is an important thing. And I'm, I'm six foot one, about 220 pounds. I've been exercising as an athlete for almost 30 years now, I guess more than 30 years. Um, I'm going to be able to, I'm not going to be able to get away with higher levels of force than say an officer that's female, five foot three, 110 pounds. Sure. Right. So for telling me, oh, you know, you can't use a chokehold because, you know, but the chokehold might be the only thing that's going to save that officer's life because she's so, so much smaller. And that was one of the things, you know, they, they said, juries, you have to be careful as a bigger person. Um, juries are going to look at you and think, well, you should have been able to defend yourself. Right. Whereas they're, they might look at a smaller officer, male or female, doesn't really matter. And uh, somebody who might be really skinny or, or something like that and think, oh, well, yeah, of course they resorted to deadly force because you know they were they can't take care of them you know so it's kind of a double-edged sword to be you know an athletic yeah sure (laughs) a bigger officer but but i think limiting i'm just hesitant to limit things like that because i i do think shooting someone it, it should be the last resort and i think when you take more options away at the lower levels you Again, this is just my my guess is you're going to increase the amount of, of deadly force uh, circumstances. So to close, what would you say would be if you had to pick one thing, one sort of general reform or practice or what have you that you think would improve uh, the overall level of policing leading to fewer, the likelihood at least of fewer instances of deadly force being used? Well, what would that be? Well, I'm going to give, give you two, two things that I think would be beneficial okay. um, to, to kind of for the public to understand policing better. Most departments of decent size have a citizen's police academy where you go through some of this training. And then at the end, you go through a ride along. It's like, it, depending on the department, it's like a week long program or it's like every Saturday for a month or something like that. Um, I had a few people ride out with me at the end of their citizens police academy and they get a better understanding and so that they're they just understand the job better than they did before and that's i think that's a key thing for as many people as possible to to know on the flip side i'll give credit to uh, state of texas because um, this was before george floyd this was i want to say 2018, 2019 school year, uh, maybe. And I, I left teaching high school, so I'm not really sure what the status of this now, but they had put a proposal that in order to graduate high school for these upcoming students, I don't know, it kicks in a little bit later, uh, that they were to be, they were to watch a video on how to act around police, like how to behave on a traffic stop, how, you know, how to basically leave your interaction with police safe and sound. Right. Um, and I think that's a good idea because, you know, one of the things I show my students and I've 
I don't show it to every class, um, but I've shown it a lot at different institutions. Um, is the old Chris Rock video um, that he did with his when he had his Chris Rock show, and it's called "How Not to Get Your Ass Beat by the Police." Yep. And <laughs> yeah, it's a funny video, and it gets a little kind of silly at the very end. But so much of what he says in there, if people just did that, they'd be fine, whether they're white, black, Hispanic, you know, Asian, gang member someone in a business suit doesn't matter if, you know, and so I think those are things that, that would help. And I think police, last thing I'll say is I think police could do a better job of, of explaining their side uh, to the public. There's not a lot of time to do that. Community relations, police officers are the ones likely to do that, but um, generally you know, the- Say it seems to me. I wanted to get. That, I wanted to get. I, I'm no expert, but I have opinions. Damn it! I wanted to get oh, your yeah, take sure. on, on one one thing that I've been pushing. It, it's uh, the exact opposite of defund the police. I believe that uh, police actually need to have more training and higher standards, and to come with that, higher salaries. And so, I feel like we need to do the exact opposite of defund the police. We need to expect more of the police. We need to train them up more. And we also need to pay them, therefore, more to kind of compensate for that, what what more we're, we're asking of them. And I wanted to get your take on, on that, because it seems to me that's not something you hear a whole heck of a lot about. So, Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, for most departments, you, you just have to have a high school diploma or GED. Um, I remember being told by the police chief when I got hired and my old police chief is now a professor of criminal justice at Texas state. So he went and got his PhD too. So it's kind of funny. We had, we had <laughs> lunch together a few months ago to catch up. Um, but you know, he, he would tell me that officers that have graduated college are much less likely to use force than officers who don't. Mm. Part of that is just being around different people, being around, you know, that kind of thing. And I, he never showed me data on that, so I don't really know what the exact data on that would be. But that the other thing I'll say about that, too, is when you look at people in high school and college and they're like, oh, I'm going to college or I'm in college, I'm going to graduate. Oftentimes, they'll look at policing and be like, oh, well, that's that's just some, something you do if all you have is a high school education. Right. I say that because that was that was actually told to me um, by a student at Texas State um, when I was a cop. and. Uh, didn't go over very well with the three officers on scene yeah. because two of us, two of us had bachelors and one, our sergeant had a bachelor's and a master's. So, um, but I think funding police and, and offering higher salaries is going to attract better people. Um, it's going to be more competitive so you can select better people. I think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the one thing I've said about defunding the police is, you know, a lot of my, in, in academia, or at least, you know, even in, uh, public education and my wife's a fifth grade teacher. Um, if a school is not performing well, do you just defund the teachers? You know what I mean? Like if they're yeah. not passing the standardized test, what do you do? Oh, we're going to take away some of your resources and your funding. We're going to pay you less now. It's counterintuitive. And, and that's kind of what we saw when they de- the, the cities that did defund the police crime just went through the roof. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. You know, better training, better pay, better quality of candidate would all be things that would really help. Well, on that note, we will end off. We we went a little bit long. We normally do. I guess that means that I really enjoyed talking with you. That's Will. Okay. I hope I hope you enjoyed talking with, I did. with me I too. Did. And thank you. Thank you so much for taking this time to, to talk. All right. Thank you, sir. You have a great one.
We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview, and if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters-exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.